When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 172, The End of Tudor Wales. From the crowning of Henry VII to the death of Elizabeth I, the Tudor monarchy was, to some extent, perceived as a triumph for Wales. The Welsh king on the throne, Wales no longer treated as second-class members of that kingdom. Many Welsh nobles had ascended to positions of authority all along the court and in the halls of the counties across Wales. For the last 10 episodes, we have talked about how this influenced Wales at all levels of society and how it created factors that both pushed and pulled people to migrate from Wales to the continent and far from home. That trickle it created would soon cause a flood. Union with England politically ended any legitimate separation of boundaries between the two people, even if the language, culture, and xenophobia that separated them continued in its wake. The lack of political boundaries and the need to speak English to hold positions of power meant that over the next century of Tudor rule, Wales became a very different and much more associated place with England overall. More and more Welsh people began to move freely into England. Many more became key cogs in the navy and the army. At the head of all of this, in the Elizabethan period, was Henry Herbert, the second Earl of Pembroke. Herbert, from that illustrious and notorious line of Welsh foils, had risen up the ranks to become the richest and most powerful man in England. He was supremely capable in his role as both Earl to the Crown and Lord President of the Council of Wales. Herbert's aunt, Catherine Parr, was the last wife of Henry VIII, and his uncle, William Parr, was the first Marquis of Northampton, who was an influential man during the reigns of both Edward VI and Elizabeth I, two of the Protestant Tudors. Herbert was responsible also for restorations of the Cardiff Castle and had been a patron of various cultural items, including collecting heraldic manuscripts. At the same time that he was appointed Lord President of Wales, he also became Vice Admiral in South Wales, and so therefore had both military and political position. He also took a prominent place in the trials of Mary Queen of Scots and of Norfolk's son Philip Howard, the Earl of Arundel, in 1589, he was a key person for the Queen and had been someone of importance for quite a long time during the reigns of Edward VI all the way up to the end of Elizabeth's. 
He would pass away in 1601, just a couple of years before the death of the queen herself. And because of this, his perception as being her loyal subject and key relationship allowed him to create himself a fairly strong and uh, powerful position, something that would be important for his entire life. On an interesting side note, something I learned as I was edit creating this uh, episode is that his armor that was manufactured for him in was built around 1585 or 86 actually still exists and you can actually see it at the um, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York and it's a fabulous bit of armor it is elaborate to the point of ridiculous in the amount of effort and work they've done it's it's a fairly detailed piece and you can look it up online actually um as well you can find his portrait in the uh, national museum in cardiff and so you can understand just how influential he was to wales and to the entire kingdom because of this influence that he had created both within the tudor monarchy and in wales with his strength of character so much so that it became difficult to do anything in Wales without his permission and without his say so especially in official channels during the Elizabethan era many of the Welsh population had found their lot with the Anglican church especially as more and more religious items were translated into Welsh many saw common cause with the church as they received their own bible and prayer books in their own language, completely either in Welsh or in English, this again reinforced the idea of a local faith to the populace. Few could dispute that this was better than the Latin versions used in Catholicism, certainly important when you're carrying on certain parts of the sacraments of the church to have them in your own language, or at least in a language you can understand it makes it easier, I think, in general for the populace to linked to the faith and to feel a part of it rather than to have this magical language that they may not necessarily understand. And yet it was still familiar. It still felt like the Catholic Church. It hadn't veered off into extreme versions of Calvinistic Puritanism, which itself had begun to find purchase in England. Wrexham had remained one of the few places where Puritanism reigned in Wales, where if I was to put it bluntly, fun was outlawed. Sabbath breakers and those who were maypole dancers, as examples, were hounded out of town by certain elements of that faith group. The force of the Puritan will in that community, while influential, did not reign in any significance elsewhere in Wales. As more and more Welshmen rose to prominence under Elizabeth, there was also backlash and an increasing small number of Welsh people remained staunchly Catholic in their religious positions and viewpoint. When the Catholic Queen Mary died in the ascension of yet another fierce Protestant, there was a demand and a need to oppose her amongst those of that faith. In England, Puritanism, as I said earlier, was on the rise, and it took sides against the middle ground of Anglican Christianity and also Catholicism. 
But in Wales, it was the Catholics who had tried to oppose Elizabeth. In 1571, the plot to replace Elizabeth with her Catholic cousin, Mary Stuart, better known to us today as the Queen of Scots, this conspiracy thought to free Mary, who had been kept by Elizabeth in the Tower of London because of that very threat she posed. As many plots went, it was exposed before it got beyond the planning stage, and many modern scholars thought the whole thing was too vague and too poorly thought out to succeed. The amount of Spanish troops they had acquired to overthrow the government was simply too small to achieve that goal, and public response and sympathy to Mary would not have created the momentum needed to support the conspiracy. Keep in mind that while some may have had feelings for Mary and for Catholicism overall in England and in Wales, it was certainly a minority of the population, and there was already an outcry against this kind of thing. So a group seeking to oppose or to establish what amounted to a foreign-backed government in England in this era would have been fiercely opposed in all likelihood. There continued to be some Welsh nobles who were tied to various plots, but none of these plots succeeded. Yet, there were a small representation compared to the population as a whole, as I mentioned. Two Welshmen convicted in the plot, Hugh Owen and Tom Morgan, fled to Europe likely to avoid execution. Morgan, from Monmouthshire, acted as Mary's agent in France, seeking support for the imprisoned heir. Owen, from Carnarvonshire, worked with other Catholic monarchs as the chief of intelligence for King Philip II of Spain and sought to bring loyalists of their country to their cause against Elizabeth, but rarely did they make any progress in the matter. Again, as I pointed out, there were some Catholics in Wales and some who were loyal to Catholicism over Protestantism and willing to actually go into a situation of aggression and go so far as to consider revolution, but they were small pockets. They were nothing big enough to consider large scale what would be needed in order to fight a war against the existing government. Paranoia over the protection of the queen from these plots had ran thick and fast from 25 to 1587. Each of these plots created a level of concern, paranoia, a conspiracy amongst the populace that it created this desire to protect the queen, something that the few monarchs before or since have really ever seen. As well, xenophobia towards those outside of the British Isles also began to rise. And for the 1587 end date was the attack of the Spanish Armada and the victory of the English fleet, which would begin nearly 400 years of English dominance of the seas. Even with these few examples of opposition, there were, as we reach the end of the Tudor times, general Welsh loyalty to the English crown, and it was probably as strong as it had ever been. The Council of Wales and the Marches continued to rule over Wales, using judicial might to bring help and to bring less corruption and a more stable and just lawmaking and law-issuing. While certainly not perfect, or in all cases incorruptible, these judges were much improved over what had happened during and before the War of the Roses. Justices of the peace could still be problematic due to how appointments of these officials were made based on nobility rather than merit, 
deputy lieutenants, who were seen as the chief local officers, often suffered under poor leadership and graft, pretty much for the same reason. Sheriffs, as well, were drawn from local noble landholder families, which had a much lesser role than it had been in the medieval period, and still acted as chief executive officers for the local area nonetheless. If the local official had support from the citizens, or at least most of the gentry, they would be able to defy commands from the council and often avoid fines or censure because of this. In other words, if the local sheriff decided to help out his buddies to avoid prosecution, they would then have defense from the local community who, of course, would support their local guy over these outsiders and would then make it difficult for the outsiders or the regular government to actually pursue, chase, punish, or even imprison said sheriff for the corrupt activities. So as long as it benefited enough in the community, there was no reason to get rid of that person, which in a way, I guess, would keep him on his seat, but also would be perceived as creating loyalty within the community, even if it's misplaced. Yet, as lacking as they were, this new system still worked reasonably well and was far improved from what had been before, as justice was a dubious adventure under the previous marcher system and in the principality. Literature, on the other hand, at the end of the Tudor era, was growing more and more confident. Welsh translations of the Bible and many related tracts and books on religious philosophy were printed in Welsh for the first time in the last decade of the 16th century. At a time when Shakespeare was remaking English literature, the culture of Welsh poets and authors was busy as well. Some of these poets were deeply influenced by their new patrons, the Anglican clergy. So praise poems and moral poems with religious bearing became extremely popular from these poets. In fact, it forced new versions of poetry into the Welsh writing system to deal with the style of poetry, and it changed what had been going on in the medieval period in the way that we understand poetry to work because of all of these changes. The reason for the divergence in the realm of religious life was largely driven by financial concerns. From the middle of the 16th century, the old practice of wealthy noble benefactors were losing and falling off, not just because there may have been less of them, but also because there were a lot less that were interested in the Welsh language. Many were finding their feet in the English language communities, and politics was almost completely an English affair at this point. For this reason, more and more poets were needing a new place to go. Finding support among the Anglican clergy allowed them to continue to be funded by these new wealthy benefactors, and it contributed to the overwhelming sense that religious thought was driving much of the thinking of this era. Religious poetry and the need for this poetry varied sharply from the older styles that these new professional poets shied away from this, these past meters in their poems. Like so many things that had driven the medieval period, early modern Wales was ending the use of guilds in large measure, and the guilds of poets and bards was one of those that fell by the wayside. Professionalism meant an indoctrination and a need to 
habit, religious thought and thinking, which differed greatly, of course, from what had been going on in England, where you have more and more cultural diversity and more writing that was built around honoring the crown or dramas and comedies and silly stories and body adventures, which just weren't happening in the same way in Welsh at this point. It, The cultural change and shift shows the conservatism that existed in Wales at the time versus what was going on in the more cosmopolitan places like London, because as Shakespeare is building the Globe Theatre, much of the Welsh poetry is getting more and more focused on religious upbringing and religious moral observance. They were general. They weren't specific to any particular moral outcome, but yet the change was quite stark in comparison. And in saying all of this, the first printed books in Welsh start to come out. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals, so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The These writers were also trying to formalize the Welsh language and drive development of Welsh forward in new ways. The first printed Welsh language book was called, and here we, apologies for how I'm going to try and pronounce this, uh, I believe it's called Ini. Irvir Huyn, written by John Priest, a civil servant and land speculator. Priest was a religious humanist who believed strongly in the morals and in a desire for 
the teaching of people to be on a moral basis in more than just educating them on math and literature and on the sciences, but rather in moral upbringing, something that was common in education throughout this point, most education being done by clerics, it obviously would fall in moral categories quite frequently at this stage. It wouldn't be another century before you get this move away into more secular instruction. His first printed book appears either in 1546 or 1547. We're not entirely sure. The book sets the Welsh alphabet, including a note on spelling and pronunciation, the calendar, which includes monthly directions for farmers and rules about finding Easter. You can see the religious idealism, religious doctrines such as the creed or articles of the Catholic faith. He was a Catholic, by the way. Uh, the Pater Noster, or the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, Seven Virtues of the Church, that is, the Seven Sacraments, and the Virtues to be Practiced, and the Vices to be Shunned, together with their branches. As you can see, this book only gives slight mention of the Welsh language and kind of veers off into a lot of moral teaching. Others would continue to develop grammar books to help educate minds and spirit in the era these grammar books would set out various rules, translate various documents from Latin or English, and would set the stage for the arrival of the first printed Welsh language dictionary. In 1534, Sean David Rees, known later as John Davies, was born in Anglesey. He would travel Europe shortly after his marriage sometime in 1555 and would return to North Wales to become the headmaster of the Friars Grammar School in Bangor. He would continue to move around a great deal, finding, finally settling in the Brecon Beacons, working as a doctor and grammarian for the Welsh language. Rees had been publishing books on grammar as early as his time in Italy in some 20 years prior to his arrival to the Brecon Beacons. This included things like Latin grammar studies and he was first and foremost a student of language. That study would then lead him to write one of the earliest Welsh grammar books for print. Rees's Cambro Britannica Cimrucavia Lingua Instructions e Rudimentria, published in 1592, was the first grammar book of Welsh language written in Latin. The book now has almost no educational value since Rees tried to focus the Welsh language into a Latin grammatical lens, which, if you understand the two languages, makes little to no sense. He also published other books featuring the defense of pseudo-history of Geoffrey Monmouth, something we've talked about in great extent uh, probably almost a hundred episodes ago now, and he worked on and completed a and a couple of translations of Latin books. By far, the most successful Welsh grammar writer was John Davies. Towards the end of 1604, after the death of Bishop William Morgan of Malthloyd Marineth, he would serve in the church for many years in various roles, driving forward a number of key projects in Welsh. In 1620, he helped create a definitive edition of the Welsh Bible, known as the Richard Perry Bible, but it is thought today that much of the credit for the uniformity and correctness of the language used should be given to John Davies. Davies and Perry co-edited the Bible together, and it is now considered, as I said earlier, the definitive edition. 
1621, John Davies published his own Welsh grammar book, and some scholars think he was behind a Welsh prayer book published the same year. His last and perhaps greatest addition to the Welsh language was the 1632 Dictionarium Duplex, a dictionary in two parts in both Welsh and Latin sections, which began in 1593, while the Latin Welsh section, an abridgment of a larger work written by Thomas Willems of Trefir. Willems had begun his version in 1604, but was not able to get it ready for print before he passed away, in part because of various issues with the way it was written and other adjustments that needed to be made with the printers and just couldn't get it done. And his colleague that he passed it on to in the end turned it over to Davies to help finish it and therefore it ended up in his hands to perfect. Davies spent almost a year in London while the dictionary went to press to make sure it was printed properly and that there were no issues. Published as it was in 1632, this document became yet another key way of codifying Welsh in both spelling, pronunciation, and in the written ideal that comes out in the printed word. Much of what we know of modern Welsh comes out of this point simply because, much like with English, if you don't have a formal spelling system, things continue to, to modify, change, and grow, and in some ways get better and worse, depending on the situation, multiple spellings of the same word, which can be originated through different cultural influences, then become problematic because amongst the local populace, there may be variant spellings, either due to not understanding how the word is written, or more likely because the language had been just that language and not written language, there may not have been a formalized way to spell things. So as you go through and modify and codify all of this stuff, it then allows you to create this ideal of the Welsh language, not one that's medieval, but one that is modern and one that can be adjusted and manipulated as needs to be just as any living language is. I think it's fair to say that people think that because the language is old that it's somehow near death or or because it isn't spoken by a lot of people it, it's struggling or or whatever but a language's life is built on the fact that it continues to grow and it continues to develop through different eras so in other words word adaption starts to happen things like how you say modern words like a computer or an iphone or an android or even a television, all of these things need to have their equivalents in the language that you're speaking, even if they started out in another language, even if the way you say it is not really much different, but you want to have a spin to it. You want to have your own version of things. You know, the, to the French word, l'ordinateur, is computer, but in French, it is how they've determined to say that word, and not all French say it that way. And so all of these things kind of work to create, develop, and grow a language where it might have died off under normal circumstances if left to fallow. Like if you look at Latin, Latin doesn't die because people stop speaking it. Latin dies because there's no one to carry it forward. There's no one writing it. There's no one continuing to develop it. There is people who still speak it to this day but there's no adaption into Latin of modern terms. There's no creation and continuation of the Latin language as a 
something that you continue to develop and grow because it's modified and and become a part of something else and become much bigger and broader than it was before. So having these books written, having this work being done, especially by John Davies, creates and supports the Welsh language at a time when the political and cultural will was moving more and more towards English. If you look in Scotland where Gaelic is being spoken, you can see how it starts to fall off because there isn't the same sort of will to continue to speak the language. It survives and has thrived in later times because it was kept alive by those who were not in the powerful positions, who were not necessarily in positions of authority to actually carry it forward. Welsh runs into the same problem, but it's laid on in its development because all of this work had already been done for it. The language survived well before we got to the point where English idealism of trying to make a monolithic society starts to see the Welsh language as a problem. Up until this point, it's a nuisance, but it's not a problem. And thus, it's able to continue to grow and survive and, I would argue, thrive in Wales to this point. It also is helped by the conservatism of the Welsh themselves and largely in the peasant areas of Wales, in the rural backwater areas of Wales, which largely is still most of the country. The language thrives, grows, and continues to function as an everyday communication between people. And in some areas of Wales, it is that to this day, something that not all languages have the advantage of. So we owe a lot to the work John Davies did in this era and how much him and William Morgan and others helped support the language at a time when officialdom didn't care and the nobility didn't care. So we're, it's one of the reasons why we focus so much on the religious aspect of things, because without it and without that drive from those who are in those religious environments, we wouldn't have this continuation of the language, certainly not in any way, shape, or form in the way we would perceive it. And at the end of the Tudor period, we also saw this inevitable immersion of Wales into the national scope of royal involvement and in the kingdom of England, that it remains, as I said earlier, generally a rural and conservative place, but it also is changing and growing in ways that are very much unexpected if you consider where Wales had sat in the era before the arrival of Henry VII. Wales had become such a, in quotes, success that focus turned to the troubles in Ireland because that was now seen as the troublesome part of the English domain and one that they had been trying to complete the conquest of for nearly 500 years. And of course, will continue to be a problem, in quotes, uh, for hundreds of years to come. And to this day, one would argue... And with that, we're going to leave this episode off. I thank you all for listening. I hope you have a fabulous day. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod. 
We're also on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And if you'd like to help contribute to the podcast to help support us as we continue to move on into new decades, into new issues, uh, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Thank you, everybody, for listening once again. And have yourselves an awesome week. And we'll talk to you later. Bye. A Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.